You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Rebecca Naden. I'm the Head of Risk and Resilience um, here at ODI, um, and I'm delighted to welcome you all here um, for our event today on child poverty, disasters, and climate change. Um, this event builds um, on a report um, that we've just published, um, which looks at um, the relationship of climate change um, and disasters across the whole um, life cycle um, of child development, from child um, to adolescence, and really thinking about the implications of natural hazards on child and, and adolescent poverty trajectories. And we're joined by a panel here today, and we also have um, another colleague um, here online. Um, but I'm going to hand over in a minute to the panel to, um, so that Coco can introduce um, them to you. But before that, I'd just like to introduce Coco Warner, um, who's come to us today from, from Bonn. Um, COCO is the Head of Environmental Migration, Social Vulnerability and Adaptation Section um, at the United Nations Climate Secretariat, UNFCCC. Um, COCO and I have known each other for a long time, um, and I know that she's tremendously busy with lots of uh, <laughs> different things, and particularly um, as we're moving into the, the summer season around the negotiations. <laughs> so we really are very grateful for her to be able to come and chair the event today. So I'm going to let you introduce the panel, COCO. Um, Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks so much, Rebecca. And good morning, everyone. Also, good morning to all. Good morning or good evening or very, very good morning. We have an international event this morning. Many people are joining us online, as well as some of our panelists. So as Rebecca said, I'm Coco Warner. I'm from the UNFCCC, which is the Climate Secretariat. I'm leading the sub-program on climate impacts, um, vulnerabilities, and risks. And I'd love to introduce our panelists. We're joined today from New Delhi um, by Mr. Kamal Kishore, who's a member of India's National Disaster Management Agency. He's had years of experience working on the ground, um, of course, in disaster management, disaster response, as well as really trying to target poverty and helping people who are affected recover and prosper. So Kamal, we're so glad um, that you've been able to join us virtually. We're joined by Nancy. Uh, nice to be with you all. Uh, thank you. <laughs> I'll just talk right over you. Um, we're also joined by Nancy Yuan. Nancy is a humanitarian affairs focal point um, and sh uh, with the global platform for disaster risk reduction. Um, and, that, and she's on the policy team of the United Nations major group for children and youth. And Nancy, we know you also have a, a really interesting academic background, and we're so glad that you're able to share some of those perspectives of youth and children today. Um, we're also joined by Vidya, um, who's here home at ODI. Vidya is an expert in chronic poverty and the lead author for the report that we'll be diving into in just a few moments. Um, and we're, we're just really thrilled and excited about um, the insights that you're going to be able to bring us from this, this report. Last but not least, joining us very early morning from the East Coast is Hamish Young. Hamish is the Chief Humanitarian Action and Transition um, Leader at UNICEF. Um, that's the UN Pro... Help, help me out. We always say UNICEF. Everyone knows UNICEF for your work with children. <laughs> 
United Nations International Children's Fund. Thank you very much. Thank you so so much, Hamish. Um, he has over 20 years experience working in aid and development um, with both the United Nations and civil society, and um, we'll be asking you about some of your perspectives as well. So without further ado, um, let me quickly explain how we'll do our panel discussion today. Um, and it is a discussion, so we really want to hear from you as audience members here at ODI in London, as well as all of you who are joining us online. We'll have a chance, I have a chance, to ask each one of our panelists one or two questions, and then we'll briefly, that'll be about 45 minutes, and then we'll briefly engage in a conversation amongst we five, and then we'll turn the time over to you as audience members. For those of you who are joining us online, we're using technology to gather your comments and questions. So I have this, oopla, have this little tablet right here, and um, I'll be reading out some of your questions. So Vidya, you're a lead author, or you're the, the first person on this um, tremendous report, Child Poverty, Disasters, and Climate Change. I recommend this to everybody. Um, could you just get us started by Telling us from your perspective as lead author, what, what are some of the highlights and particularly what surprised you as you delved into this topic over the past two or three years? Certainly. Thank you, Coco. Um, so this research in which we look at the relationship between child poverty, disasters, and climate change, we find this to be exciting and novel for several reasons. So one, on a conceptual level. Most research to date around disasters tend to focus on the number of people killed or around economic losses. In this research, though, what we are doing is that we're taking this a step further to instead understand some of the longer-term effects of that disasters can have on child well-being, on child poverty. And we're doing so amongst a subset of already vulnerable children, amongst a subset of children in poor households and in chronically poor households. So that's on one level what the novel aspect of this research provides. Secondly, it's also quite exciting for us to present this as we adopt a life cycle approach to this research. So specifically, we look at child well-being across different development stages of children and adolescents. And we look at outcomes as in terms of um, health and education and other outcomes, but then also in terms of the services that are conducive to these outcomes, and then also in terms of household level well-being more generally. And third, it's also quite exciting to present this research simply from a data perspective. So here we bring together data from very different sources which we believe are brought together for the first time. So around child well-being, around disasters, and around climate trend analysis as well. So to give a concrete example of this and some of the highlights of this report then. So as I noted, we look at child well-being in this paper across the life cycle of children and adolescents. Um, but for time constraints, I'll just focus on one or two results. So for example, looking at this timeline longitudinal approach, in our paper, we find that birth registration, so beginning right as, um, as a child is born and enters this world, we find that birth registration is less common in disaster-prone areas of India and um, the Kenyan counties of interest compared to areas with fewer disasters. 
And in this paper, we identify disa uh, disaster-prone areas as being areas which have a higher number of disasters than the countrywide mean in the years leading up to the data set that we've relied on. And, and just to question, why, why is that important, birth registration? I can only imagine. Yes, absolutely. So birth registration is important for several reasons. For one, it's a potential development accelerator. So one which can lay the foundation for pro-poor development interventions as well to either be universal or also to target specific groups. In fact, this very act of endowing children with, um, with this official identity then paves the way for um, further, for further, provides them with rights and paves the way for further development gains in education, in healthcare, yeah. in formal employment, so really does have these longer-term development gains. But the very fact that these, um, that birth registration itself then is less common in disaster prone areas is itself telling to some of the policy implications then, that can be drawn. Then the people are invisible. They don't have a, a legally recognized status until they have that that identity, that legal identity. Absolutely. And also it should be noted that when we look at these child development outcomes, um, we are not here necessarily ascribing causality, but rather we're looking at relationships. So some of these outcomes itself might be due to the vulnerabilities that are inherent in disaster-prone areas compared to elsewhere, but nevertheless it's quite telling that you do see these stark differences in disaster-prone areas compared to elsewhere. Yeah. So that's one such example. Another example as well is when you look at, for example, primary enrollment rates, which are much less common in disaster-prone areas, again, compared to elsewhere amongst the chronic poor subsets. And in this report, we've taken this analysis then a step further by also looking at certain intersecting inequalities that groups of children might face. So looking at children in chronically poor households in the first instance, for example, as we've done in India, or poor households in Kenya, but then also looking at other compounded disadvantages. So for example, in India, we've looked at Adivasi adolescents, adolescents belonging to uh, the scheduled tribes which have been historically marginalized. And what we see is that in India, Adivasi adolescents are much less likely to be enrolled in primary education across the country. But then when you look at the subset of disaster-prone areas, what's quite striking is that the gap in enrollment rates between Adivasi adolescents compared to other groups even gets wider. So for example, in our paper we find that 44% of um, Adivasi adolescents in chronically poor households are enrolled compared to 53% of children in other, uh, in other groups in chronically poor households. Um, in in um, in f areas with fewer disasters. However, then when you look at disaster-prone areas, these figures drop to as much as 24% of enrollment amongst chronically poor Adivasis compared to 44% of other groups in disaster-prone areas. So yes, there are reductions, but the reduction is much larger for Adivasi adolescents in these areas. This really widening inequalities um, and widening the gap between these groups. So here then is tangible proof that certain groups continue to be left behind and they continue to be left behind particularly in areas of fragility and here amidst the prevalence of disasters. Uh, so many questions to ask you about that. Um, you know, one of the, uh, the whole theme of the Sustainable Development Goals 
and the post-2015 development agenda is really leaving no one behind. And since you mentioned Indian adolescents, maybe this is a good time to transition to you, Kamal. Um, and of course, like I said, I have so many questions. We're going to loop back to you in, in our discussion. But um, Kamal, Vidya has just uh, given an example of one group of disadvantaged youth, Adivati, did I say that right? Adivasi. Um, so this report of ODI highlights that in India, as one of many examples, children in disaster-prone areas are twice as likely to already be living in chronic, in chronic poverty and three times as likely to become impoverished. What I'm getting from, from this report, which you were telling us about, Vidya, is that that disadvantaging, I'm making up words here, that, that initial disadvantage situation makes a really big difference in development. So Kamal, I wonder if you could speak to programming. You have so much experience in India. What kinds of things is India doing or what, what is necessary to take those equity and inclusion things into account in on-the-ground programming. I wonder if you could share a few thoughts. Uh, thank you very much. I think that's, um, uh, thank you very much, Coco, and thank you, Vidya, for that uh, introduction to the report. Uh, before I say what uh, our experience here in India is, I would like to congratulate ODI for for uh, doing this study because it's uh, throwing up some new insights which will have important policy implications for how we do disaster risk management in the country. Now, in terms of our experience, um, I think it is pretty much in line with what the report says that uh, children in disaster-prone areas are hugely disadvantaged. Uh, your study talks about looking at the impact uh, uh, in a sort of in a life cycle time frame, and when, once you begin to look at that, you come up with new insights, and you have to come up with new um, measures to to ensure that uh, those adverse outcomes can be reversed, uh, and we can ensure um, you know better better outcomes for for the children. So our experience here is that you know uh, when we uh, establish uh, uh, minimum standards for relief for nutrition for children when we um, come up with uh, you know contingency plans in the face of disasters evacuation plans in the face of disasters it has to be much more sophisticated you can't have a template approach uh, how it would work for you know Vidya mentioned Adivasi children how it it would work for other children how it would work for children in rural areas, how it would work in urban areas, there will be differences in that. Because uh, they, there are differences which are because of, uh, you know, underlying vulnerabilities, but, but there are also differences because of, uh, you know, other socioeconomic conditions, uh, which basically, uh, you know, reinforce some kinds of behaviors and, you know, uh, create opportunities or lack thereof. So a sort of a more sort of nuanced approach, you know, area by area to say evacuation planning is really the only way we can ensure that we can have um, have 
good response to an early warning, for example. And and only four days ago, we had a major, major cyclone um, ripping through the state of uh, Odisha. And uh, I think we can take some satisfaction from the fact that uh, the whole thing, the outcome of the early warning and evacuation exercise worked out rather well for children. Uh, the the mortality rate overall is is down by 99% compared to 20 years ago. That's amazing. But, uh, but for children, it's even better. Uh, and that requires some planning. That requires some very specific planning. You can't treat the same ch- uh, all the children across the board in the same way. You have to really look at their context. So I think that's one thing, you know, basically doing your disaster risk management planning in a very context-specific way and really use the local context as a starting point. The second thing is that over the last 20 years or so, uh, school safety uh, is a very um, a fashionable thing. You know, there are school safety programs across the world. Uh, I think uh, in light of Vidya's study, but also uh, some uh, lessons that we've learned in the last uh, few years, uh, we also have to begin to look at school safety in a different way. A lot of the times when we look at the safety of schools, we begin to look at schools as, you know, the um, relief camps or temporary, uh, temporary shelters of last resort. I think we really have to minimize that. Schools are schools. Schools belong to children. They, you know, we if there is a school which functions as, uh, a relief a relief uh, facility, a shelter for more than a week, that's really not acceptable because it leads to uh, adverse outcomes for children. You know, if schools are for education, uh, a safe learning environment for children. Uh, that should be the primary purpose. We should not focus on just the physical asset, but its functionality. Mm-hmm. Another part of it is that while we focused a lot on school safety, we also have to have more nuanced programs on early childhood in in India. Wherever we have tried to do that, it is it has begun to show some results in terms of better outcomes. At least in the short term, we haven't really looked at the the life cycle outcomes. Then there is just one more point I would like to say. Actually, two more points. One is that, particularly in the case of intensive events which uh, are less frequent but huge impact there is really room for a lot more innovation uh, after uh, an earthquake some time ago we had a very innovative uh, foster parent scheme uh, which seemed to have worked for the children at least in the beginning but it would be good to look at a longitudinal study and see what are the sort of outcomes in the long term but I think there is room for innovation there in, in the context of uh, recovery. But we need to assess the, the effectiveness of those innovations o- over a longer time duration. My final point is that uh, what is very clear is that you know, how we look at uh, vulnerability of children in uh, areas which are quote-unquote disaster-prone because more disasters happen there, and uh, other areas which are disaster-prone, which are exposed to low-frequency, high-impact events, such as earthquakes, will have to have some sort of a differential approach there. Uh, I think you know some of the findings 
of the study, perhaps I wouldn't readily agree with. In fact, I wouldn't agree with uh, with um, a simplistic notion of just looking at the uh, previous events to look at, to determine which area is is disaster prone. You know, by that by doing that, we will uh, have some blind spots. Uh, we will we will miss out on high risk areas where our children may be at risk. And my final point uh, is that. Uh, while you know we have said a lot, this is not this doesn't apply to early childhood, but a little bit later about children's participation in risk reduction. But frankly speaking, you know we haven't really cracked that one. You know we have you know interesting programs uh, to do that, but how do we give voice to children? How do we sort of uh, have their leadership of risk reduction issues? On that, I think we have a long way to go. I, I think I'll just stop here, and I'm sure there will be an opportunity to come back to some of these points and discuss them some more. Thank you so much, Kamal. I'm, you provided the perfect bridge to Nancy. I'd like to ask you in just a moment. I'm not done with you yet, Kamal. Um, but I'm, I'd like to come back to that with you, Nancy, yes. on giving children and youth a voice and, and fostering their participation. But Kamal, um, first of all, it's, it's so refreshing to hear some good news. And, and what good news to hear that the basics of, of people whose lives are in danger from a number of extreme events has gone down so much in India. That is tremendous progress. I think you said 99% reduction in mortality. It's just terrific. And, and yeah. we wish everybody who's been affected by this recent cyclone a lot of good luck in recovering. Just one last question to you before we go over to you, Nancy. Often in disaster recovery, it feels almost like we're playing to the least common denominator. And of course, we want people not to lose their lives, God forbid. What is it going to take to raise our perspectives to a development perspective where we're um, unleashing human potential in spite of these, these kind of setbacks that we as a society face on a regular basis. I, I noticed that you know a lot about socioeconomic development policies. Where are one or two entry points for risk-informed um, decisions that will help lead us more towards development, building on the great so success of the last 20 years? So, uh, Coco, if I had to pick just one area uh, for uh, for making that happen in the context of uh, a country like mine, uh, it would be really focusing on making all um, social infrastructure, physical infrastructure, disaster resilient. You know, in a country where um, you know we have serious infrastructure deficit combined with an infrastructure building frenzy, uh, I think this is really a one key strategic entry point that all our infrastructure, social infrastructure, as well as major infrastructure, is built to standard. Yeah. I think it is not acceptable that um, the, uh, the power lines, uh, the telecommunication networks, bridges and roads, even airports, uh, get blown away. Uh, of course, you know you cannot reduce the risk to to zero, uh, but it has to be. You know we have to do much better than 
uh, we have so far. And in doing that, some of that risk reduction of the in the built environment has to be done in a participatory way. This is not something which can be done by government alone because the shape and form of the built environment is determined by the action of millions. And really we need to sort of sort of launch a movement of sorts so that we can move beyond saving lives to now saving livelihoods. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Kamal. We'll, of course, come back um, so that all of you can talk with each other. I heard a little bit of a piquant <laughs> about your report, so we'll get back to that in just a moment. So, Nancy, you are part of the UN major group for children and youth. So you're talking of course, amongst adolescents and young people worldwide. Um, I'm so curious, Kamal had mentioned that he thinks that it's really important to give youth and, and children a role and help them participate, let them make their voices heard. What, what are you hearing from your unique kind of perspective on the major group? Um, what's important to young people and how are these disasters affecting their lives? Thank you, Coco, and also thank you, uh, ODI, for inviting UNMGCY to be part of this conversation because oftentimes we do like to say, you know, nothing for us without us. And if you're making decisions uh, on behalf of young people, then you really need to have them be part of the conversation. And so for those of you who are um, not familiar with the work of the United Nations Major Group for Children and Youth, so we are the UN General Assembly officially mandated space for young people to engage in the UN system. And so rather than being an organization, uh, we are more of a, a collective that represents uh, over 6,000 youth entities in over 170 countries. And so all of our kind of findings and uh, policy, you know, priorities are from, you know, consultations and discussions with our members. And so what we, even as um, an entity, are trying to do is to really make sure that the voices of young people are always part of the discussion. Um, and so especially for a conversation like today, I think that's even more important. So we're not just talking about one vulnerability, we're talking about children, we're talking about natural hazards, and we're talking about poverty. That's a trifecta of vulnerabilities. That's a hell of a you know, developmental challenge that we're talking about. Uh, but at, when we bring it back to you know, young people, um, I think even you know, recently in the news, even before we were talking about, you can see young people you know, uh, striking from school to talk about the importance of having, uh, you know, taking action against climate change. You can see people really taking ownership of these decisions that adults are making that will affect their lives. And what we also see is not just um, so these are some, you know, uh, a lot of these protests, it's more in developed countries, but what we don't really get to see or hear are the voices of those in poverty who may not have the means of actually accessing some of these channels to get their voices heard. So some of the work, for example, that um, Kamal, Dr. Kamal, that you're doing, you know, that's great to uh, make sure that these children actually receive protection. But on the front of disaster risk reduction, so 
Um, actually, a few years ago, there was a, a children's charter for disaster risk reduction that was developed in uh, 2011 uh, with consultation um, with over two, uh, 600 children in 21 countries. And that outlined uh, five priorities. Mm -hmm. And so number one, that was safe schools and uninterrupted education. Two, child protection before, during, and after disaster. So this goes with the life cycle approach. It's not just when disaster strikes. That's already too late if that's when you want to intervene. It's also what happens before and after the disaster. Uh, and then three, the right to participate and access information. And so this also goes to show that you don't just leave children out of the equation. You're not just you know, making decisions for them. How can you actually include them in this process? And if things happen, how can you make sure that you get their feedback? It's ongoing. It's not just having a consultation at the start, then you just forget about them. Um, and then uh, uh, four, safe community infrastructure, relief, and reconstruction that reduces future risk. So Dr. Kamal, I think that also goes back to your point about the uh, importance of infrastructure, although social infrastructure is also important. And then five, DRR that reaches the most vulnerable. And so when we're talking today, not just about disaster risk reduction, but for children in poverty. Um, and so these are some of the hardest to reach groups um, already. But when we're talking about you know, trying to accomplish the sustainable development goals and about leaving no, no one behind, if you leave these children in poverty behind, then that really prevents us from being able to accomplish the uh, SDGs by uh, 2030 because um, what we're talking about is you prevent their uh, current ability of reaching their future potential. And what happens to them when they're young, for example, the, the interruption to their education, mm -hmm. interruption to their access to healthcare, that will exacerbate the kind of catching up they have to do um, in, the de uh, in their personal development. And so when we talk about, you know, Diara, there's all these kind of uh, financial um, kind of uh, motivations that we say, for example, $1 you invest in DRR saves you $7 down the line. What about children, right? When you talk about children, I think this will be, uh, I haven't done the financial modeling, but I'm sure this will be, you know, three or four or five-fold uh, because of the benefits that children can receive if they receive the protection early on. And so um, I can add this to the discussion later on, but what we're trying to do at UNMGCY is really, you know, helping with some of these uh, consultations that are happening on the ground to make sure that not only are we getting uh, ch children's and youth voices involved, but what can we actually do to equip them with the skills to respond? Because children aren't just vulnerable in disasters. They can actually, they have agency and they can actually help in the disaster response, though you need to do it in a way that protects them. Um, so we can also um, later talk about the Compact for Young People and Humanitarian Action that uh, we have also been a part of. Yeah. Just checking if we do, we have time. I can ask you another question. Um, this intergenerational perspective, um, for those of us who have children, and even if you don't have children, there is a cliche, the children are the future. It's true, it's literally true. Um, how receptive are governments to a longer term perspective? Because you mentioned, and Hamish, I'm gonna come back to you um, about this as well. This, this triad, disasters, youth and children, and development, the future that we want, how do governments respond to that? Are they equipped to take a longer view? 
So, so far, uh, what we have seen is the short answer is no. Mm. They're not really investing a lot of money into uh, programming to actually equip the children with the skills that they need to respond to disasters. That's not really part of the equation when we talk about, you know, uh, uh, when we talk about, you know, um, mainstream being gender and things like that. Youth and children still sometimes is left out of the equation. Um, sometimes there'll be uh, particular programs for them, but it's not kind of throughout the process, so that's something uh, we would like to see improved upon. But also another thing is uh, the view kind of right now that governments have is that children are children, as opposed to seeing they're actually in a developmental stage than the progress of growing up. And so how can you equip them at every single stage mm -hmm. to ensure that they have the right support? And when it comes to DRR, the long-term planning, um, I mean, we can see the gains already being made through um, disaster risk reduction. For example, what happened in India uh, as opposed to 20 years ago when they didn't have these early warning systems in place. Now that you can see you know, how positive uh, that response is. And so what can we also do to ensure that um, not just you know evacuating you know uh, children young people but how do they know what to do so that they're also equipped if something else happens down the line um, and so and in terms of the gen intergenerational view it really seems to be that you know young people they, they really see their potential um, and sometimes um, it, it's when, when you're talking about government sometimes they're kind of uh, in a con they probably don't mean to be condescending, but they just assume, oh, you're young, you know, you, you don't have a degree yet, or, you know, you're still doing this and that, so we've got the expertise. Uh, but actually, if you thought about them as partners that could help you accomplish your goals, there's so many, you know, more opportunities for you to explore. So that's something um, that we, you know, really want to uh, see uh, more as uh, youth engagement. Yeah, thank you so much. and. Um, you've all, all of our panelists have given so much more food for thought. We'll get to that in just a second. But before we do, Hamish, at UNICEF, you, of course, span these three or more areas. You do development work with children. Of course, you work in humanitarian and disaster risk management issues, as well as, as the children's well-being and development itself. And one thing in this report that's quite interesting is the data sets you draw, you've drawn on Vidya and, and others. Um, you've drawn on these three sets of data, um, which are child well-being, disasters, even climate change shows up. Um, so Hamish, considering the findings of this report and your work and your day job, what are UNICEF's priorities in in make sure, making sure that child well-being is at the fore. We all want a better future. Children are taking us into that future that we want. And all of these things get in the way. Chronic poverty, disasters, climate change, it's all changing. How, how do you keep up the good fight? That's a big challenge. Oh, and, and Hamish, sorry, um, could you unmute your microphone and back up just 30 seconds? <laughs> sorry, we, we didn't hear the first of what you said. Okay, is that it? Perfect, you now? thank you. Okay, so, well, it's okay. I just said thanks very much, Coco, and, and uh, if I can just quickly say thanks to ODI for um, uh, uh, 
putting on this event and showcasing um, this important piece of research. Perhaps if I just a, a quick, a few quick supplemental points before um, addressing the specific question of UNICEF's priorities. Um, just to say or, or reiterate what the um, uh, uh, the other speakers have said, um, Nancy and Vidya. I mean, I think this is. Um, it's a very important piece of research because it is one of the first times that has brought together those three factors um, that you mentioned. Um, and for us, that's critical because risk is different um, depending on age, gender, socioeconomic status, and risk changes over time. Um, it's, not a, it's not a static measure um, that you just simply do an analysis of one point in time and then um, base your your programming around that. Um, I think it's also important um, uh, uh, the points that, um, that that Nancy was making um, on the role of, of children and particularly young people, um, because their agency also changes over time. Um, you know, for example, what children need to know about school to reduce their risk and to become active contributory citizens will vary with age, with gender, with their socioeconomic status of the household and the communities they live in. Um, and I think those are the sort of nuances um, that the, the report brings out by having um, different, uh, uh, by looking at it from, from the three different perspectives. Um, I think also um, it's, it's important to recognise that risk is a very localised issue. Um, and in that respect, the report provides some helpful insights. To be really effective, we need to understand the very local context. It's only when risk assessments, collection of sex and age aggregated data on disasters, disaster damage and losses um, is institutionalised and carried out systematically that we'll be able to, uh, to fully understand uh, um, and most importantly, um, to design programs. Um, so uh, um, yeah, so it's um, an important part of re piece of research, um, and, and you know we think it's uh, uh, helpful in, in uh, uh, designing programs. Now, in terms of your actual question about UNICEF's priorities, um, it's interesting as a as a an organisation or actually a fund started in 1946. Um, to uh, respond to the refugee need, the needs of refugee children in, in Western Europe um, after the, the Second World War, we've always had a major focus on, um, on emergencies. Um, that said, when you, you, were, you were checking, Coco, the, uh, the acronym for UNICEF, um, in fact, the E is no longer in um, the acronym. It's just uh, no one can say UNICEF without the E. Um, because it was made a standing body by the UN uh, in the, the late 50s, um, and that was in recognition of the fact that um, there are a lot of long-term development issues around children and there will always be emergency issues. So we moved beyond that and ever since then we've been what's often called a, a dual mandate agency. So we're very focused on, on addressing both emergencies and long-term development needs of children. Um, and of course, disaster risk reduction is where that comes together. Um, and in, in, you know, well, I was gonna say now, but you know, I think really it's been recognized for at least the last 20 years. Climate change is a, is a critical piece of that as well. 
Um, so for UNICEF, you know, our starting point is obviously at the moment the Sendai framework, um, which recognises the importance of disaggregated data um, to support member state um, disaggregated data. The, the problem is that uh, um, reporting disaggregated data was optional um, from Sendai, and we, we feel that this was a, a lost opportunity. Um, because in terms of uh, building sustainable responses, um, having government gather that data is really the only sustainable way forward. I mean, government uh, has, to, has to be in the lead on that. Um, a priority, another priority for us is recognising the importance of, um, of a multi-hazard risk analysis um, over time. Um, our current uh, strategic planning and our plans for some time um, have recognised the importance of this um, and that it focuses not only on the disasters, uh, natural disasters, um, but also on conflict and, um, and climate risk and the interplay between them, the three. Um, there, there is strong connections between natural disasters and conflict. Um, particularly uh, uh, climatic-related uh, disasters, um, chronic, uh, uh, chronic droughts that cause, cause food insecurity um, are drivers of conflict. We know that. Um, and climate change is making natural disasters more frequent, less predictable, um, and therefore is also um, comes into the equation um, to drive uh, uh, conflict. Um, so we've recently developed a number of tools to support our work in this area. It's guidance on risk-informed programming. We have new emergency response preparedness platforms, um, new conflict analysis uh, tools that take um, climate in, into, into account, for example. Um, whereas traditionally, um, climate and uh, uh, climatic disasters have not really figured as a big part of conflict analysis. Um, we're also supporting a lot of uh, uh, interagency work. Um, there's recently been development of UN-wide guidance on resilience, which I'm sure you're familiar with, Coco. Um, there's the high level, the joint high level steering committee on the humanitarian development nexus, um, which is chaired by the Deputy Secretary General. It's actually meeting in Geneva tomorrow. Um, of course, there's the work of the IASC in, in uh, Geneva. Um, and then perhaps I'd like to come back to, uh, uh, to, to Nancy's point um, and say that for us, um, you know, working directly with those most at risk um, is, is one of our top priorities. Um, just a quick example, in Nepal, um, we support uh, school-level hazard mapping um, where children present their findings uh, to the local government authorities and the local DRR measures uh, are developed taking those children's findings into account. Um, so that's uh, a priority. Um, perhaps finally, um, to do all of this consistently at high quality and at scale, um, we need to strengthen uh, um, systems um, and build them where they don't exist. So um, that's where the long-term development aspects come in. Um, again, as always, government leadership is critical. Um, and so we're working with governments um, to gather, uh, uh, I'm sure everyone's familiar with mixed data, multiple indicator cluster surveys data, 
Um, and we're now introducing an emergency um, mix module to guide our response um, and better understand how disasters have impacts on existing deprivations and, of course, how they produce new ones or create new ones. Um, and most particularly, to understand how children are impacted, um, how they're impacted at different ages, and how different sexes are impacted. Um, because it's only when we know and have these, these particular nuances that we can uh, uh, design more effective DRR programs. But perhaps I'll leave it there for now. I'm sure you'll want to uh, come yeah, back thanks. to us. Thank you so much, Hamish. Um, I'm, I'm curious, maybe a question for you and Kamal. When you're doing programming, if you're the programming officer, here's a provocative question. Isn't it just so much easier for a one-size-fit-all? You've been all talking about local context and nuances, different phases of life of children and adolescents. Is that tremendously inconvenient for the programmers? And how, is that a challenge or is that the wrong um, conception? How um, is, it, is it better to be, or is it doable to be so nuanced in programming or, or are programmers more um, appreciating a broad brush approach, killing many flies with one swat, so to speak? Kamal and Hamish? Uh, so this is uh, from New Delhi. So look, you know, I mean, from um, in a, in a, over a short uh, over the short term, uh, it would be very easy to uh, take a template approach, one size fits all, and you're done with it. But very soon, you realize that you're not getting the outcomes you want, and if your systems are accountable to people, it's going to backfire because you know if. If too much, especially when you want to take things to scale and everything is done in a template fashion, you know, you, you know the system begins to throw up, um, throw up feedback, uh, even if it is not solicited. So I think there is, there is no, uh, you don't have the luxury of, uh, of uh, playing with this any other way. Uh, we have to be context specific. We have to be nuanced. And how to do it? I think the, the problem is that a lot of the times programmers think that they have to do everything themselves, you know, and they do not place enough agency in the hands of the people themselves, uh, the children themselves uh, in this particular case. So, for example, in the coast of Odisha, where we have uh, multipurpose cyclone shelters, if the government got involved in the management of each one of these shelters, we will not be able to evacuate 1.2 million people. Yeah. You know, it has to be led by people who are actually, uh, you can call them principal beneficiaries uh, or principal actors. They have to really lead it. When they lead it, when, you, when your programs leave enough room for innovation, that, you know, that contextualization begins to happen on its own. Extending the same thing to children, you know, when you when I do a risk assessment for, you know, a small neighborhood where a child goes from his house to the school and back, um, you know, I look at risks in a certain way. But when you ask a child to do it, they will they will see five other risks that you haven't taken into account. 
because you know you just don't have that kind of risk perception you know you're not looking at it from children's perspective so the key challenge is for us to how do you sort of come up with a a good balance between uh, efficiency of programming but at the same time leaving not leaving uh giving enough ensuring enough agency in the hands of people who are actually the principal actors in any disaster risk management work mm. so i think that's the thing so um so yes on the surface of it uh, a one size fits all template approach works but when it gets to the you know when rubber hits the ground you quickly realize that it's not going to go very far mm, thank you so it really pays off if you want to be effective, it really pays off to incorporate what all of you have been talking about. Thank you so much. And Hamish, your perspectives? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I of course agree with uh, with with Kamal. Um, and, and I'd just add that, you know, I think I mentioned risk is a very localized factor. Um, and, uh, um, you know, what can make a, a, a child vulnerable in one community um, can be very different in another community just up the road. So I think from, from uh, in addition to everything Kamal said, we, we draw two points from that. One comes back to the need um, to involve um, and listen to um, children, have them you know, contribute and help design their programs, um, which I think we've already mentioned. The other point, though, that, that comes from this is um, the importance of... Um, a decentralized approach and and you know decentralized uh, you know for for international agencies ngos etc to support national governments decentralization efforts um, so i think uh, uh, here in drr it's really important to to recognize the role and support and empower um, um, you know, provincial governments, district governments, municipal governments, I mean, they go by different names in different countries. Um, but, uh, you know, those branches of government, those third tier branches of government um, that are most directly in contact with the most vulnerable people have the best understanding of localised risk factors um, and therefore are able to uh, um, developed, you know, the more nuanced, better focused programs. Thank you so much. You've both really spoken to, and, and for me, it's very refreshing uh, to hear you both speak about the positive role of participation and in including children. And of course, Nancy, that very much speaks to, to what you were saying. Now a question to Vidya and, and Nancy. When we think about the future, the future that we want, I, I know I'm kind of broad brushing this, but we want resilience. We want healthy children who grow up into being um, productive adults and you know a thriving society wherever we are in the world. And so much is changing. I work in the world of climate change, but demography worldwide is changing. So I know we usually think the climate is changing. It's almost like we assume everything else is the same. But of course, technology is changing our lives so much, demography, etc. cetera. How, how can youth express themselves and help us move into a totally new future, a resilient future? What are the frontiers of resilience and how can children and youth help us get there? 
with all of these different things changing? So with that, I think, one, there's a lot of opportunities because every youth represents an opportunity. That's why we really need to make sure that we allow each and every one of them to have the uh, you know, necessary means to do well in their future. Um, and also when we talk about uh, moving forward, I mean, the number one of the sustainable development goals is no poverty. And what can we do to stem the kind of, when, when you look at time, right, the uh, persistent and transient nature of poverty and how can we make sure that that transmission isn't intergenerational. And so that starts with if we can have the right DRR mechanisms in place so that they have more, um, so that in the future they have more ability uh, to thrive, to respond, to bounce back. Mm -hmm. Because how do you build back better if the foundation is so weak and the foundation isn't there for them to do that? So I think um, this is where uh, a lot of government agencies, a lot of organizations, NGOs have the opportunity to really lay the groundwork for uh, young people so that they can build back better and continue to build back better going forward. Thank you very much. And um, from our work as well, I mean, so I've spoken a bit about the intersecting inequalities, which speaks to the need to bring issues of equity and inclusion more strongly into sectoral policy on planning on the one side. Um, I've spoken less about some of the household level dynamics, which have also been covered extensively in this report. And this really speaks to the enabling environments we need to provide for children, because the reality is that most children, not all of course, but most children and the ones explored in this analysis exist within households. So we need to ensure that the household well-being and household dynamics, including poverty dynamics, are properly addressed. So in India, for example, between 2005 and 2011, overall you do see aggregate poverty rates reducing. You do see people being pushed out of poverty. But looking at poverty dynamics specifically, you see that there's, this is not a one-way street. Poverty dynamics are by no means linear. As households escape, yet other households fall into poverty, and many remain in chronic poverty, where poverty is often transmitted intergenerationally from parents to children and so forth. So in this context, to enable, to endow children with the tools by which they can then build resilience, we really need to address and tackle these drivers of household-level chronic poverty and the services and um, systems that can help tackle these as well. And specifically in context of disasters, here in this paper we see that the risk of chronic poverty is much higher in disaster-prone areas, regardless of how we define disasters. As um, I should note as well, apologies, I was somewhat incomplete before in defining poverty, in defining disaster-prone areas purely as um, the number of disasters being higher than the mean. In this paper, we also look at the duration of disasters as mm -hmm. well and look and disaggregate by type of disasters as well. These, um, the results are available in the annex and throughout the reports. But just to reiterate that by looking at, by ensuring that um, countries can build then a, adaptive capacities to help support child and longer term development and household level development as well as a way then to endow children with the tools by which they then can ensure that their households and future households as well can continue, continue to escape but effectively remain out of poverty over time so that they can sustain their poverty escapes. That's, that's the future that we want. That's such a, a good note. Um, Kamal and, and Hamish joining us 
virtually and Nancy and Vidya. It's been a really great panel discussion so far. Now we'd like to open it up to you here in the room at ODI in London, as well as our online participants. I have um, probably all of you have, have already gathered a few questions that you'd like to address to our four panelists. And I have a few here online just to make sure and incorporate everybody. We'll start um, with two questions from our online participants that will give you in the room a little bit of time also to think what you'd like to talk about and then I'll come back to you. And I have several here, so I'm gonna cluster these together. Um, so we have a question from Lynn Taylor from the Tom Thompson Writers Foundation. It's great to have uh, Thompson Writers with us. Thanks for the media presence. We really appreciate your work. Um, so this question, have any of the panelists looked at the longer term mental health effects on children? So that's one question from, from Lynn Taylor. I'll ask a second question. With the global platform taking place next week in Geneva, high-level political forum in July, and the climate summit, as well as the SDG summit, that's the, Uni uh, that's the UN Secretary General's two summits in September, um, what is the one thing which all panelists think must be prioritized to ensure the whole course of a child's life is taken into consideration when making policy and programmatic change in disaster-prone areas? What must be done at these important milestones coming up in the short term? So one question about mental health and one question about these important political moments coming up in the short term that will help us get to that future that we want longer term. Those two questions are addressed to anyone in our panel. Any immediate um, thoughts from you four? I, I could take the first one. Please, come on. So, uh, well, I mean, um, the long-term mental uh, health effects on children, uh, I, when you talk about long-term, uh, if you look at the duration of a reconstruction and recovery program, three to five years, on that there is uh, some work, uh, particularly after major events, tsunamis and earthquakes. Uh, in uh, India, we have Tata Institute of Social Sciences that has done longitudinal studies on um, what happened, what are the men mental health effects uh, on different uh, sort of population groups, uh, including uh, on on children, and more importantly, uh, what are the ways to 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 address uh, those effects? Uh, what is the kind of psychosocial support that can be provided in a community-based fashion, in a culturally appropriate fashion, so that it has a sustained uh, impact uh, on the mental well-being of um, of uh, the affected people, particularly uh, the children. And uh, since I have the floor, one thing uh, that must be prioritized, um, I mean, there are many things one can say, but for, uh, for risk, uh, really, you know, if we can begin to uh, generate uh, risk scenarios uh, for, uh, you know, 10 years from now, 15 years from now in very vivid way and use those scenarios to 
to have uh, greater participation, not just participation, but leadership of children in some of the risk management work. By the time Sendai framework completes its tenure, uh, some of us would be retiring, and a, ch a child studying in class eight will be in a leadership position. So they will be actually bringing a closure to the Sendai framework. So we haven't really thought about these things in that fashion. Uh, so when when the sort of the the world conference happens in in 2030, uh, people who will be addressing this they are perhaps still in high school. So I think we really uh, you know we really begin to visualize that and see how what is the kind of leadership we need to foster to to take the world up to Sendai and beyond. Thank you. And um, would anyone like to address the question about priorities next week at the UNISDR I, Global yes. Platform? Please, could, could I come in on that? Yeah. Um, um, although before I do, just just I, I I just want to say very quickly on the the mental health question. Um, I just I don't have a good answer for it. Um, but just to note that it it was a very important question. Um, because I think across um, humanitarian work, development work, um, and and the intersection of the two at the nexus, if you if you like to use that term, um, it's one of the the most challenging, but also one of the most neglected areas. Um, and you know, I'm also you know I'm thinking beyond uh, uh, the mandate of a you know a organisation like UNICEF. Which just focuses on children. Um, you know, none of us do enough on child mental health, but you know, in the the broader health uh, area generally, um, mental health um, unfortunately um, is not well enough uh, addressed. Um, you know, after a lot of emergencies, we do quick psychosocial programming um, to try and stabilise situations. Children, um, but you know we don't really address it in a holistic fashion. Um, so that's not a good answer, but you know um, the toughest questions usually don't have, have good answers. That's why it's important to ask them. On the prioritisation question for um, the uh, the global platform coming up in in Geneva, but also I think it related to some of the global summits um, next uh, later in the year. I think it's important to recognise that these are member state-led events, um, and um, and I think there, um, for me personally, um, so much of what we're talking about, if we're really to come down to the to the overarching or underlying priorities, however you want to put it, um, it's member states need to start really seriously, all of them. Um, addressing the climate change issue. Um, you know, you've just got to look in what's going on uh, uh, where you are at the moment in London with, uh, um, with climate change strikes um, and protests, uh, you know, going on. Um, and, uh, you know, in, in back home in my own country in Australia, there's regular strikes of children, school children going on strike over... Uh, um, Government inadequacies uh, over climate change, um, and you know that's two sides of the world. And there's also a lot of young people and children all the way in between in countries, um, also in different ways 
um, striking and protesting over climate change. This tells us, you know, we, this is, we've just been talking about the need to listen to children and young people. Um, this tells us um, that governments are not doing enough to address climate change. Um, they're not uh, serious about meeting their Paris Declaration targets um, and going beyond that. Um, so if you really want to look at the, the overarching priorities um, in these, uh, these big meetings that are coming up, because they are member state government meetings, um, that's, uh, uh, that's what I would say is the top priority. Um, and then flowing from that, um, you know, is the, uh, the climate change adaptation piece. Um, of which disaster risk reduction is is critical. Um, and there, I, I think, I come back to my earlier points, um, governments need to prioritise a decentralised approach. Um, they need to uh, um, prioritise the role of, of young people living in the communities that are most affected. Um, and what does prioritisation in that respect really means? It means financing it. It means putting their money where their mouth is um, and actually putting resources into it. So listening to, to local communities and local governments um, and then giving money to them, um, resources, to actually implement their own risk reduction uh, and longer term resilient development programs. Thanks. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, it's so exciting. You can't see it, but I can. The online questions are rolling in, and of course, you guys have been making you in the room wait. Um, what about for those of you here at ODI in London, what kinds of reflections have you had listening to our four magnificent panelists so far? Does anyone have a question or a reflection? Maybe you, we can take a few and bundle them together, please. Oh, and would you state your name and your organization? from Women for Justice and Peace in Sri Lanka. Uh, last June, uh, the UN produced a report, Push No One Behind. Um, for several years, they have been saying, leave no one behind. But last year, they said, push no one behind. That is very applicable to uh, places like Sri Lanka. They oppressed ethnic minorities who have been oppressed for seven decades. Um, uh, some of them are in abject poverty for so long. Um, MDGs didn't mean anything to them. SDGs have no meaning at all right now. Uh, so uh, in the case of the North uh, that has been under the army in the last 10 years after the war was over, the economic activities of the parents, the livelihoods have been grabbed by the army and the children are being given presents at school. So this is anti-SDGs. So what sort of action uh, can help them? Thank you very much. Um, please, you're in the front row. Thank you, Hiba Ahmed, Agulas Applied Knowledge. I have a question regarding children in um, conflict-ridden areas in particular, and what initiatives are kind of in place for when there is no structure for like governmental um, actions. So I'd, I'd like to hear more about that. Thank you. Maybe one or two additional ones. Yes, please. Uh, thank you. Uh Oh, sorry. <laughs> um, 
Oh, my name is David Pipkin. I'm just a, I'm an IR student at LSA. Um, I think I'm hearing a consensus around how situation and context-specific um, and programming is the most efficient um, to tackle um, DRR issues. I'm I was wondering if anyone could talk more about like what utility, if there is like re real utility, are is there in like national programming or is that just where you'd want to get funding for, for such uh, initiatives? Great. Challenging questions. Development, maybe sustainable development, fragility and conflict, and national level programming and funding. How about your reflections, Hamish and Nancy, Vidya, Kamal? Maybe I could pick on you. I think, um, Vidya, you've also done research on fragility yeah. and conflict. What could you say to initiatives that are targeting children and, and trying to help them? Well, from the research aspect, I'd also want to echo what Hamish earlier brought up, which is around this conflict climate nexus, which is a, which is a reality that we face today. And here specifically, our uh, separate analysis that we've done on this issue finds that rates of um, when you look at ratios of poverty dynamics, so if you look at households which have escaped and managed to stay out, that being a good dynamic, where comparing it to households which have fallen into poverty over time or have escaped but fallen back in, these negative dynamics, so the negative ratios, where in the latter di negative dynamics are more prevalent, tended to be in countries and um, subnational areas where there is a higher degree of, a higher prevalence of conflict and climate. So that conflict climate and climate change and um, climate-induced disasters. So that conflict climate nexus really is there. And then when we've gone to the field and interviewed poor households on these different trajectories we've, across countries in sub-Saharan Africa, South and Southeast Asia, we've really found um, issues where there was, for example, more prevalence even of thefts. Um, so a breakdown of law and order on several dimensions. Um, so that's from a research perspective. But f going forward to speak more about um, an absence of um, government action sometimes in, the, in these contexts, I think there's an importance of recognizing the role of government, but also recognizing the role of collaborations and collaborations across stakeholders in contexts where there might be um, a failure of government action for many different reasons. So here, really pointing to the need to work together from various stakeholders, from policymakers, from national level, um, local governance structures, from civil society, from NGOs, and a host of organizations um, that may, in these contexts, also be able to um, act. And it's not just um, one sector or entity that may be responsible. Certainly, the government remains responsible, but it's also a question of how we can effectively work together to ensure that disaster um, risk mitigation efforts and so on play a stronger role in socioeconomic development writ large. Yeah, thank you. And I'd like to jump in here as well. Um, so actually next week at the Global Platform on Disaster Risk Reduction, uh, we actually, for one of the days, uh, UNMGCY, uh, we will actually be focusing on climate and disaster risk. And one of the uh, rec uh, recommendations that we would like to bring forward is to actually bridge the gap between technical and high-level plans for DRR and local action by including sensitizing and mobilizing local at-risk communities in 
and data gathering and the implementation of evidence-based uh, measures. And there needs to be more uh, explicit feedback mechanisms between experts, policymakers, and the community be beneficiaries and young people. And so I think that goes to your uh, question about you know national and local because you can have national plans which are very important but how do you localize it so that it is uh, you know on the implementation side more applicable and then to your question about uh, youth and uh, con uh, conflict situations so another point that we had uh, that we're bringing into uh, the global platform is that human-induced disasters result in more human loss and more natural disasters combined and so we believe that the framework uh, would be incomplete without addressing human-induced disasters um, and that health also needs to be retained and strengthened as a key component of this framework uh, and furthermore we want to highlight the linkages between disaster risk uh, fragility poverty and climate change so uh, we thereby call for an induced um, enhanced scope that recognizes DRR as a cross-cutting issue uh, and includes biological te technological slow onsets as well as all human-induced disasters into the framework. And so you, um, this way, so it's like an all-inclusive hazard approach uh, to this issue. And just uh, Kamal and Hamish, just because you're not physically in the room with us, I always have to ask, would you like to add anything? Because I can't read your body language. Yes, on the issue <laughs> of, uh, uh, Coco, on the issue of um, uh, utility of national programs, uh, I think uh, the answer is very clear that national programs, uh, if they are not too prescriptive, they are very useful because they provide uh, resources, encouragement, and they set, in a very broad sense, some benchmarks in terms of uh, the desired outcomes. And also, I think national programs uh, facilitate some sort of a horizontal exchange. So uh, locally, con uh, local and context-specific does not mean that there is no place for national programs. You know, I mean, uh, the example from here in India is that we have a national cyclone risk mitigation program, which works in all the states, uh, except two states, one, one union territory and one state that has its own cyclone risk mitigation program. But then how the, the program has actually played out in each of uh, the coastal states, they have really, you know, uh, adapted it to their needs uh, and prioritized different elements of it. So resources are available, technical support is available, uh, and you know there are some uh, desired outcomes in terms of uh, reduction in risk, improvement in preparedness. But then, as long as there is, uh, you know, the, the key thing is that the agency has to be in the hands of people at the local level they have to have enough room to be able to prioritize and drive the agenda. And if I, if I may, just on that point, we have a question from James online, and it's specifically addressed to you, um, Kamal, and it's, it's a little bit on this point, so I'm going to summarize James's question. He was asking, at the national level, what... Uh, what additional ministries does NDMA, the India's National Disaster Management Authority, what other ministries do you work with to get that inclusiveness? And how do you work with provinces or non-national entities 
to, um, to achieve what you're talking about, Kamal? Uh, that's a very tough question. Uh, in the Indian, in the federal Indian context, and I'll try to uh, give uh, as accurate an answer as possible on the the issue of um, uh, which all uh, ministries we work with. We work with a whole range of ministries: ministries of water resources, uh, ministry of urban development, ministry of rural De- development. Ministry of Earth Sciences and so on. There is a Ministry of Road Transport, Ministry of Railways. Of course, you know, the the depth of engagement with different ministries varies. And by law, uh, each of these ministries are supposed to come up with their sectorial disaster risk management plans for the country, which is aligned with the national plan that NDMA does. Uh, So, and... And the the sectorial plans have to be approved by us. So we have basically a normative role, and uh, to some extent, we they are accountable to us uh, to the extent that uh, the issues concern management of disaster risks. Uh, of course, uh, you know, with some ministries, the engagement goes much deeper because they have a more direct, obvious well-established role in disaster risk management. The others, uh, you know, are sort of relatively, uh, you know, fresh engagement and not as deep as we would like it to be. But this is something a work in, uh, which is a work in progress. So primarily, these are the ones that I just mentioned. Thank you now, so much. Um, the issue of what is the um, relationship we have with the, the state uh, and um, and non-national uh, entities, sub-national entities. Uh, in a federal structure, the states are quite uh, independent, uh, quite autonomous, and they have um, resources of their own. They have their own decision-making of their own. The c- civil service at the state level is accountable to the uh, the political leadership of the state, not of uh, of the uh, of the country, not at the national level. Uh, so, in such a situation, there's a fair degree of um, devolution, decentralization, autonomy at the state level. However, uh, we work with states in three ways. One is we provide resources for some very specific initiatives, such as I just mentioned. National Cyclone Risk Mitigation Program. We also have a national school safety program and so on. So that's one. The second is uh, we establish a national normative guidance for all of disaster risk management work. There are a set of guidelines which the states have to follow. These are normative guidelines that they have to follow. So, And the third is on as-needed basis, Handholding and technical support, but really the 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 whole disaster risk reduction agenda is driven by the states. So the recent cyclone in Odisha, it's it's the whole early warning evacuation work was driven by the state. Of course, the 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 India Med Department provides the forecast and early warning and so on, but it's really um, at the state level. Thank you very much. There are a couple of questions that have come in online 
um, that, that are a kind of nice bridge from what you've just been talking about, Kamal. We had a couple of questions about sustainable development and national level programming and funding. Um, and these, um, Hamish, are specifically addressed to you. Um, here's a question. How I'm going to bundle these together. There are two for you, Hamish. How can the different stakeholders do more to push governments to commit to submitting disaggregated data as mentioned earlier by you, Hamish, what incentives need to be in place to encourage governments to submit disaggregated data? So that's one part. And then another um, related question, this is from Heather, University of Southampton. Hamish, you mentioned giving local governments more funding to implement disaster risk reduction programs. What if national governments do not have enough funding to actually do this? Um, for example, small island developing states that have limited um, public funds and the marginalized at a global level in terms of climate change and impact of climate change. Do you think greater international assistance is needed in these cases? Okay, thanks. Um, they're both good questions. Um, in terms of the um, what can stakeholders do to push government to use disaggregated data, I mean, <laughs> that's a vexed question. What can we all do to push governments to do the right things on any number of fronts? Um, uh, you know, going back to my earlier point, what can we all do to push governments to do more on climate change? What can we do to push governments to spend uh, uh, less on, on the military and less on national monuments and more on health and education. Um, you know, these uh, uh, are, you know, <clears throat> um, overarching questions of, of you know, uh, our, all, all of our respective national systems. But I think in terms of the specifics of disaggregated data, um, what we can do is show the benefits of it. I think, um, you know, that's why um, studies like the, the one we're looking at today are so important, um, because they, they document um, um, good examples and good practices where disaggregated data is, is collected and how it's used. Um, and then for, for governments, I think what is most critical is uh, uh, making the economic argument. Um, ideally, you know, the, the human rights argument um, and, uh, um, you know, would, would, would should be enough. Um, but in reality, the real politic that most of us live in um, requires a strong economic argument. Um, so we need to convince the powerful ministries in government, such as Treasury, Finance, etc. Um, presidents and prime ministers' offices that um, doing uh, uh, disaster risk reduction and building resilience um, and, and undertaking resilient development in the long run um, has a cost benefit for them. Um, it makes good economic sense. Um, it generates um, national income. Um, it increases employment rates. It helps address youth unemployment, which is um, a, a critical factor for almost every government in the world. Um, so yeah, we need to we need to make a data-based argument um, and translate that into the economic impact. 
Um, and I think, uh, you know, then, you know, we could probably talk all day on, on how you do that. I mean, different governments work in different ways. There's lobbyists, there's pressure groups, there's all sorts of uh, different, different pressure points. Um, in different governments. Um, but yeah, I think it's the economic argument that is most likely to win the day with governments. In terms of support to local governments and um, um, particularly funding for small island states, um, firstly, I'd just, just make the point that a lot can be done in DRR um, through, through the sectors um, with minimal costs or minimal additional costs. Um, there's some really simple things like elevated pumps, um, safe schools, um, and of course, you know, we keep coming back to it, but I don't think it can be overemphasised enough, is the participation of young people. Um, so there's a lot, there's a lot of uh, uh, work that, that local, local governments can do within their sectors um, by spending the money they've got um, in a in a smarter way, in a way that focuses on DRR, without having to rely on the um, on dedicated specific DRR programs. So that's that's the first thing. Then the second thing again um, on on how to get additional funds. Um, I mean, again, there's no there's no silver bullet. There's no magic answer to that, and all governments are different. Um, <clears throat> But there are good examples um, of where it's been done. A um, couple of years ago, um, I was working on the, um, the Ebola response in Liberia, and, uh, um, which was obviously a, a major national health disaster in that country. Um, in Liberia, um, there'd been a process of um, decentralization um, underway. Uh, there was a strong policy um, about uh, empowering local governments, um, but it, it had stalled. Um, uh, uh, political power hadn't been devolved, and most importantly, and it goes with political power, money hadn't been devolved to the local authorities. Um, ironically, the, the Ebola disaster um, forced that process. Um, there simply was no way to deal with this national uh, um, issue um, in all the different uh, communities across the country without devolving power and without devolving money. So, I mean, of course, the Ebola outbreak in West Africa was an absolutely tragic event. Um, but it was, uh, um, you know, it was an opportunity as well uh, to kickstart that process of devolving power and money to local authorities to address um, um, that particular disaster. Um, so there is no single, you know, magic answer, um, but there are lots of different ways. And, uh, and, I, and I think, you know, there is opportunity in disaster as well to address that. Perhaps I'll leave it there because I think we're starting to run out of time. Yeah, thank you so much. And unfortunately, the time has just flown by so much to talk about. Um, I'd like to just draw in one of the comments from our online and then um, perhaps we here in the room can have a final round of, of comments or insights, steps forward. So this is Jamie, Jamie Williams from Islamic Relief Worldwide. Disaster risk management programming and national adaptation plans should be the accumulation of local plans. 
This way, national plans respond to the actual needs and implementation is in the hands of the planners. And um, I, I think Jamie here is expressing his view, but it sounds very much, um, it's an echo of what you experts have been talking about today. Um, and he ends with the challenges to engage the chronic poor and left behind in these local processes. And that, of course, reflects some of your comments a few moments ago from Sri Lanka and other parts of the world. So this has been a really rich conversation based on this nice report, Child Poverty, Disasters and Climate Change, that Vidya, Emma, Sarah, Andrew, and John Twig have put together. Um, this gives us a lot of information. Three novel new data sets that have been brought together here together with um, partners such as UNICEF. Um, You've given us a lot to think about, Nancy, about the voice of children and youth, and of course, Kamal, your special perspective from a national implementation perspective. Uh, maybe in these last moments, we could get your um, maybe departing comments, or where should we as an audience be focusing in the next weeks and months ahead? Um, we've got the global platform next week with the disaster risk reduction strategy, ISDR and many other stepping stones along the way. Would you give us any advice, or you in the audience here at ODI in London, do you have any final comments? Maybe we can start with you, Vidya. Okay, great. Um, so there's a lot that can be said as to where we should go from here, but let me perhaps boil it down to what I see as some of the more basics. One is to just very simply put, to stay informed. And what we're doing, for example, um, in this report, yes, before reading the report, we, we, we can know or can surmise that yes, disasters might have a negative impact on child development outcomes, longer term development, and so on. But in this report, what we're doing is we're providing an evidence base for that argument to be made. So number one is just simply put to stay informed. Secondly is to be active. It's not just enough for us as researchers even just to produce this report and let nature take its course, if you will. Rather, we ourselves have to play an active role in ensuring that the research and evidence does reach those with the power to affect change, does reach policymakers on whatever um, level of government or other stakeholders and so on. And then this brings me to my final point. Yes, be informed. Yes, be active. But in being active, also work together because here really, we argue in this report that disaster and climate risk should have a stronger focus in socioeconomic development policy and planning. And in this requires, in its essence, it requires us to break down silos to not just between, not just break down silos between sectors, but also between different stakeholders and across levels. So really ensuring that um, these different stakeholders, different sectoral partners all come together in this um, effort to bring down poverty and bring forth sustainable development. Yeah, thank you so much, um, Vidya. Hamish, do you have one or two final thoughts? Uh, thanks. No, just, uh, um, you know, uh, again, to thank uh, uh, everyone for their contributions and, and for the report. Um, and uh, I know probably uh, a lot of you and, and uh, a lot of people online will be following very closely um, the, uh, the deliberations at the global platform. Um, and just to remind everyone that uh, it's an opportunity to, again, to, to push policy and decision makers on all of the issues we've talked about today. 
um, down from, you know, from things like the importance of disaggregated data, the role of uh, uh, children and young people in, um, in shaping um, policies um, right up to, to the really big uh, global issues like climate change. Um, so, uh, you know, bon courage for everyone that's uh, going to the global platform and the future events to, uh, to push those critical issues. Thanks very much. Very much, and Hamish, you actually reminded me. For all of those of you participating, you can tweet this event, your thoughts, things that you want your governments or your organizations to be involved in. The Twitter handle, or the I don't even know the right way to say this, but it's hashtag child poverty. If you want to continue this discussion via social media, would invite you to do so. Kamal, do you have one or the other um, departing comments for us? Well, I, in addition to whatever has been said uh, by Vidya and Hamish, uh, I would just uh, say that uh, we really have to um, invoke a sense of urgency. Uh, Sendai framework is no longer a 15-year framework. Four years have gone by. It's only an 11-year framework. And a lot of work to do. That's right. Thank you. Nancy. Our youthful voice. So as a parting word, I just think, first of all, you know, thank you to all for engaging in this conversation because the fact that we have researchers really looking into this and not ignoring, you know, the issues faced by those most vulnerable, I think that in and of itself is very promising. But now it's actually to, you know, go back to whether you work for an NGO, you work for a government agency, see what actions can actually be taken. Um, how can you actually move forward with this um, to ensure that we actually do more to make sure that no one is really left behind? And when, uh, you know, going back to, right, we've got these three kind of intersecting uh, vulnerabilities, children, we've got poverty, and we've got natural hazards. With all of these three difficult um, areas that we're dealing with, what can we actually do to make some meaningful impact? Um, and so, and ensuring that, you know, young people and children are part of this process too. And so that's something I really hope uh, we can get out of this discussion. It's just a starting point. Yes, absolutely. It's a, a stepping stone in our journey together. Everyone would, would like to thank you for joining us this morning at Overseas Development Institute in London. This has been a conversation about disasters, impact on child poverty and development. A special thanks to our wonderful panelists and would like to hand the time back over to the organizers. Thanks, everybody. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. Mm -hmm.